Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Baggini. Our theme of expanding horizons continues this week with a talk about the Portuguese poet and a writer of unclassifiable fiction, Fernando Pessoa. He is now acknowledged as one of the greatest modernist poets of the 20th century, taking his rightful place alongside the likes of Franz Kafka, T.S. Eliot, James Joyce and Jorge Luis Borges. Pessoa was also a serious student of philosophy and himself a very creative philosopher, yet his genius as a philosopher has hardly been recognised. That's something Gennardin Ganeri wants to put right. Ganeri is the Bimal Matilal Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto, and his work draws on a variety of philosophical traditions to construct new positions in the philosophy of mind, metaphysics, and theory of knowledge. He's a great advocate for an expanded role for cross-cultural methodologies in philosophy, and his research subjects include areas such as consciousness, self, attention, the idea of philosophy as practice, and its relationship to literature. He's written several books, including Attention, Not Self, Inwardness, An Outsider's Guide, and most recently, Fugitive Selves, Fernando Pessoa and His Philosophy. After Janardin's talk, there was a discussion featuring questions from our live online audience. Before that, here's Janardin Ganeri on Fernando Pessoa, the poet as philosopher. Fernando Pessoa, whose dates are 1888 to 1935, has become many things to many people in the years that have passed since his untimely death. For some, he's simply the greatest poet of the 20th century, certainly in Portuguese and arguably more widely. His poetry, much loved and widely read, has over the years been meticulously edited, published and translated. For others, he's gradually emerged as a forgotten voice of 20th century modernism, now finally taking his rightful place alongside giants such as C.P. Cavafy, Franz Kafka, T.S. Eliot, James Joyce and Jorge Luis Borges. And yet, Pessoa was also a philosopher, and it's only very recently that the philosophical importance of his work has begun to attract the, te- the attention it deserves. Decisively breaking with the conventional strictures of systematic philosophical writing, the philosophy in his poems and his prose anti-novel is a profound and exquisite exploration in the philosophy of self. Fernando Pessoa lived what was in many ways an astonishingly modern, transcultural and translingual life. He was born in Lisbon, the point of departure for Vasco da Gama's voyage to India, as commemorated by Pessoa's forebear, the poet Luis Camoish. Pessoa grew up in Anglophone Durban, South Africa, acquiring a lifelong love for English poetry and language. Returning to Lisbon from where he would never again leave, he set himself the goal to travel throughout an infinitude of inner landscapes to be an explorer of inner worlds. He published very little but left behind a famous trunk containing a treasure trove of scraps on which were written some of the greatest literary works of the 20th century, mainly in Portuguese, but also substantially in English and French. Pessoa's slow reception since his death is largely accounted for by the enormous task of sorting through 
reading and translating this handful of notes. Fernando Pessoa's invention of the concept of what he called a heteronym, which I'm going to explain, represents a singular moment in the history of subjectivity. Scattered amongst his drafts of prefaces to never-to-be-completed editions of his writings, and in letters to friends and editors, are the few explicit clues we possess as to his intentions. The mental origin of my heteronyms, he says, lies in my restless organic tendency to depersonalization and simulation, already isolating the twin poles around which his philosophy of self revolves. Before continuing, fortunately for me and others, these phenomena have been mentally internalized, such that they don't show up in my outer everyday life among people. They erupt inside me where only I experience them. Each heteronym is fully and in its own right a person. Ever since I was a child, he says, I felt the need to enlarge the world with fictitious personalities, dreams of mine that were carefully crafted, envisaged with photographic clarity, and fathomed to the depths of their souls. I intensely conceived these characters with no need for dolls, distinctly visible in my ongoing dreams. They were utterly human realities for me, which any doll, because unreal, would have spoiled. They, that is the heteronyms, were people. Pessoa's three most famous heteronyms are the world-class poets he names Alberto Cairo, Alvaro de Campos, and Ricardo Reich. I placed all my dramatic, all my power of dramatic depersonalization in Cairo, he says. I placed all my mental discipline clothed in its special, own special music in Ricardo Reich. And in Alvaro de Campos, I placed all the emotion that I deny myself and don't put into life. As he puts it in a draft preface for an unfinished edition of the fictions of the interlude, his designation for the complete corpus of his poetic work. In the case of the authors of the fictions of the interlude, it's not only the ideas and feelings which differ from mine, the technique of composition itself, the very style, differs from mine. In those instances, each protagonist is created as essentially different, not just differently thought out. For this reason, poetry is predominant in fictions of the interlude. In prose, it's more difficult to other oneself. So heteronomy is, as the name implies, an othering of oneself, an awareness of oneself, but as other the contrast with the pseudonym is deliberate. Pessoa writes, Pseudonymous works are by the author in his own person, except in the name he signs. Heteronymic works are by the author outside his own person. They proceed from a full-fledged individual created by him. A pseudonym is a mask, a disguise intended, even if only ironically, to hide the true identity of the author. A heteronym is something else entirely. It's the author writing outside his own person and in doing so transforming himself into an other I. A heteronym occupies the first person position within the experience of the author and has a defined literary voice and a distinctive power of expression. So to write in the name of a heteronym is not to hide oneself behind a mask, but to live in experience as that very person. Each heteronym, Pessoa says, 
is lived by the author within himself and has passed through his soul. A heteronym is someone in me who has taken my place. In assuming a heteronym, one transforms oneself into another I. First, we must create another I, he says, charged with suffering in and for us, everything we suffer. The experiences of my heteronym are both in me, in the sense that I am their host, and also for me, standing with respect to me in a first personal and subjective relationship. When Pessoa writes of heteronomy, that it's a subjective state in which every felt pain is automatically analysed to the core, ruthlessly foisted on an extraneous eye, he exactly formulates the essence of the concept in the idea of an experience that is at once irreducibly first personal and yet also alien. A heteronym is a fully formed subject subsisting within one's own conscious experience. Heteronyms are, to introduce a notion I'm going to say more about later, virtual subjects, subjects which are well-defined personalities who have incorporeally passed through one's soul. Unlike the target of empathy, which would occupy a second-person position addressed as you, the formal feature which is definitive of heteronomy is that a heteronym occupies the first-person position, spoken of with the use of the first-person pronoun I. A heteronym possesses agency, if only in the capacity to compose verse, and has its own expressive and experiential style. A heteronym is another I, an I who is not me, an othered I. Pessoa writes, But since I am me, I merely take a little pleasure in the little that it is to imagine myself as that someone else. Yes, soon he, I, under a tree or bower, will eat twice what I can eat, drink twice what I dare drink, and laugh twice what I can conceive of laughing. Soon he, now I, Yes, for a moment I was someone else. In someone else I saw and lived this human and humble joy of existing as an animal in shirt sleeves. So heteronymic simulation is, we might say, a mechanism of self-alienation. If transforming oneself in simulation into another I is the core of the idea of heteronymic subjectivity, an equally important theme in Pessoa is that of depersonalization. Living through a heteronym, which from one point of view must certainly constitute an enrichment of experiential life, is paradoxically described in terms of a loss of self. Today I have no personality. I've divided all my humaneness among the various authors whom I've served as literary executor. Today I'm the meeting place of a small humanity that belongs only to me. I subsist as a kind of medium of myself but I'm less real than the others, less substantial, less personal, and easily influenced by them all. Again, he says, I created a non-existent coitery, placing it all in a framework of reality. I ascertained the influences at work and the friendships between them. I listened in myself to their discussions and divergent points of view. And in all of this, it seemed that I, who created them all, was the one who was least there. Several distinct claims are intertwined here. The first is that even as he assumes multiple heteronyms, 
Pessoa is separately conscious of himself as in the capacity of medium or meeting place for them. Unlike a heteronym, which corresponds to a well-defined style of experiencing, this separate self-consciousness is one that's empty of any specific personality or content. It's a depersonalized self-awareness. The use of the first person in relation to this type of self-consciousness is thus quite distinct from that which figures in the self-expression of a heteronym. Second, one's awareness of oneself as medium or meeting place is less robust than one's awareness of oneself as another I, in the sense that it does not sustain a stronger sense of presence. And finally, one's awareness, one's self-awareness as meeting place is associated with a clearly identifiable trait, which is that it at least partly, partially consists in a capacity to observe the heteronyms, both from the outside, as when Pessoa writes, I see before me in the transparent but real space of dreams the faces and gestures of Cairo, Reich and Kamposh, and also, more importantly, from the inside, a partly introspective and partly empathic capacity to analyse and scrutinise the subjective character of the heteronymic mental life being lived through. It seems then that two distinct kinds of self-awareness are co-present in any act of heteronymic simulation. A heteronymic self-awareness, which consists in an awareness of oneself as another I, living through a distinct set of experiences, emotions and moods, and what I will call a forumnal self-awareness, an awareness of oneself as hosting the heteronym, which is at the same time a place from which one's experiential life qua heteronym can be observed and analysed. It's from the first-person position of the forum that Bernardo Suarez, the semi-heteronymic narrator of the Book of Disquiet, speaks when he says, For me it's never I who thinks, speaks or acts. It's always one of my dreams which I momentarily embody that thinks, speaks or acts for me. I open my mouth, but it's I another who speaks. The only thing I feel to be really mine is a huge incapacity, a vast emptiness and incompetence for everything that that is life. Besoa describes Bernardo Suarez as a semi-heteronym because, he says, his personality, although not mine, doesn't differ from my own, but is a mere mutilation of it. He's me without my rationalism and emotions. His prose is the same as mine, except for certain formal restraint that reason imposes on my own writing. And the name Bernardo Suarez is also a semi-orthonym because the name is a mere mutilation of Fernando Pessoa, Bernardo differing from Fernando in only two letters, and Suarez an almost exact syllabic inversion of Pessoa. He shows a keen understanding of the co-presence of these two kinds of self-awareness. A simulating heteronymic self-awareness consisting in the adaption to the feelings of another I. And a forumnal self-awareness consisting in objective analysis of what is thereby felt. The formal structure of Pessoa's philosophy of self is nowhere more clearly set out than in his celebrated late poem, Countless Lives Inhabitors. Countless Lives Inhabitors. I don't know when I think or feel, 
who it is that thinks and feels. I'm merely the place where things are thought and felt. I have more than just one soul. There are more eyes than I myself. I exist, nevertheless, indifferent to them all. I silence them. I speak. The crossing urges of what I feel or do not feel struggle in who I am. But I ignore them. They dictate nothing to the I I know. I write. When I think or feel, the first stanza says, it's one of many possible eyes that is thinking or feeling. This heteronymic use of I is immediately juxtaposed with another use of I to refer to the place where things are thought or felt. The second stanza continues with this use, for it's only from the position of the forum that I can affirm that I have more than one soul. Each heteronym taken individually thinks of itself as a single unified self. The two uses of I, heteronymic and forumnal, are again juxtaposed in the final stanza. The urges felt or unfelt are the felt volitions of a heteronym, that is, of myself qua another I. But I qua forumnal observer disregard them. The poem's disconnecting air of paradox is a deliberate construct produced by the alternation without explicit indication of two quite distinct uses of I. There's a third use too, almost too pedestrian for Pessoa to mention, the standard and everyday use of I to refer indexically to whomsoever it is that has spoken or written it. As when Pessoa writes in a letter to a friend, I submitted the copies required by the Office of Propaganda. In the poem, there is perhaps a trace of this third indexical use in the echoing phrases, I speak and I write. The disconnect between the heteronymic and the forumnal can be heard playing out in another poem in which who I am, my heteronymic self, is contrasted with what I am, myself as forum. I don't know who my soul is, nor does it know who I am. Understand it, it would take time. Explain it, don't know if I can. And in this misunderstanding between who I am and what I am, there is a whole other meaning lying between earth and sky. Now, the act of heteronymic self-transformation is quite different from that of inventing a character in a story. Pessoa alludes to the difference when, while noting that novelists and playwrights often endow the characters of their plays and novels with feelings and ideas that they insist are not their own, he adds somewhat gnomically that the authorship of heteronyms is the same in substance, although the form is different. What is fundamental to the notion of a heteronym is that it's an othered I lived by the author within, within himself, that is to say, lived first personally. So a heteronym is not a character because the relationship an author stands to an invented character is a third personal one. The point in question is analogous to the one William James makes when he says that it's impossible to reconcile the peculiarities of our experience with our being only the absolute's mental objects. Objects of thought are not things per se. They are there only for their thinker and only as he thinks them. How then can they become severally alive on their own accounts and think themselves quite otherwise 
than as he thinks them. It is as if, James says, the characters in a novel were to get up from the pages and walk away and transact business of their own outside of the author's story. The autonomy here denied to fictional characters is a freedom from the author who has created them. James' point is that if an individual human subject were merely the mental object of another mind, standing in the same relationship to this mind as the fictional character does to its author, it would similarly be without capacity for autonomous self-expression. The comparison helps to clarify what's so distinctive and original in the idea of heteronomy. For a heteronym is not a mental object, but a mental subject, a virtual subject transforming its author into another I. Why should I look at twilights, Pessoa writes, if I have within me thousands of diverse twilights? And if besides seeing them inside me, I am, I myself am them on the inside and the outside. Stephen Crites, by contrast, says of Soren Kierkegaard's pseudonyms that nobody would mistake them for the voices of real human beings. They are altogether theatrical creations. They are sheer personae, masks without actors underneath, voices. Kierkegaard does sometimes describe his pseudonyms, which he also sometimes calls polyonyms, in a manner that makes them sound more like heteronyms than conventional pseudonyms. He's keen to stress that he is simply their producer, or the occasion for their production, or a prompter, souffleur for them, but not their author. He says, What is written is indeed therefore mine, but only so far as I have put the life view of the creating, poetically actualized individuality into his mouth in audible lines. For my relation is even more remote than that of a poet who creates characters and yet in the preface is himself the author. For I am impersonally or personally in the second person, a souffleur who has poetically produced the authors. Yet Kierkegaard goes on to deny that he is himself any of his pseudonyms and says that he has no opinion about them except as third party, remarks which imply that a Kierkegaardian pseudonym is also still a third party and not an essentially first personal another I. Pessoa's heteronyms, as John Froe puts it, are not, are not personae, masks through which the poet speaks. They are autonomous figures which allow him to take on quite different personalities in his writings. Polyonyms, again, are multiple names for the same object, and they give rise to puzzles of their own, most, most famously the puzzle of explaining how identity statements containing them can be informative. Solutions to that puzzle, such as distinguishing between the reference of a name and its sense, the mode under which the reference is presented, are of little help, however, in understanding the phenomenon of heteronymy. For a heteronym is another I, not the same I under another mode of presentation. One of Pessoa's most basic philosophical concerns is with what I shall refer to as the grounding problem for subjects. This is the problem of accounting for the metaphysical grounds for individual subjects of experience. What it is they exist in virtue of, what they are due to, what they are dependent on for their being. 
the invention of heteronomy serves to underline the fact that there is no solution to this problem in attempts to reduce subjects to merely intentional objects, such as are the characters in a novel. Neither is it the sort of metaphysical problem that can be solved at the level of linguistic analysis alone. A closer, if still inadequate, analogy would be with one of those stories in which each chapter has a different narrator writing from a first-person position, such as Orhan Pamuk's novel My Name is Red, or William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, or Ryonsuke Akutagawa's short story In a Grove, on which Akira Kurosawa's film Rashomon is based. Each character in one of these stories presents in the first person and is not merely reported on from a third-personal perspective. Each one takes it in turn to occupy the narrator position. And yet, a sequence of distinct narrators writing in the first person is still not a display of heteronomy. They are distinct characters taking it in turn to speak about themselves in the first person. There's no suggestion that any of them is identical to the author, and neither can any be described as the author transformed into another I. Nor does Jorge Luis Borges yet explicitly describe heteronomy in his brilliant story, The Circular Ruins. In this story, someone, whom Borges describes only as the foreigner, sets out to dream into existence another human being, having understood that the task of moulding the incoherent and dizzying stuff that dreams are made of is the most difficult work a man can undertake. Within his directed dream world, he fashions a youth whom Borges describes as a phantasm and a simulacrum, an individual who is not a man but the projection of another man's dream. Pessoa too describes the creation of heteronyms as acts of directed imagining, but the distinction between a simulation and a simulacrum is crucial, for there is no suggestion at any point in Borges' story that the dreamed-up simulacrum is the foreigner himself, another I of the, for of the dreamer, which is what would be required if the simulacrum a virtual object, were to be a heteronym, a virtual subject, a simulated occupant of the subject position. Borges ends the story with a twist. The foreigner is given to understand that he is himself a simulacrum, as, quote, with relief, with humiliation, with terror, he realised that he too was but an appearance, that another man was dreaming him. It's within the dream of another man that the foreigner exists, exists as a simulacrum. And in the phrase, he too was but appearance, there's a clear implication that what's being created is a merely intentional object. The simulacra in the directed dreams, as the characters in a novel, are virtual objects. A virtual subject, on the other hand, is a simulation, a heteronym, a transformation of the author into another I. Pessoa anticipates Borges when he writes, I begin to wonder if I exist, if I might not be someone else's dream. I can imagine with almost carnal vividness that I might be the character of a novel, moving, with the moving within the reality constructed by a complex narrative in the long waves of its style. What's important to appreciate, though, is that Pessoa is not offering this as a description of heteronymic subjectivity. It's the simpler idea 
that one might discover that one is, after all, a simulacrum oneself. The grounding problem for subjects begins with the assumption that subjects are not merely apparent, and yet reluctant to grant them the status of fundamental pieces of the world's furniture, asks what their existence is dependent on. We are more like shadows than hallucinations. There is, in fact, in the circular ruins, a trace of the idea of heteronomy. But it's not to be found in the relationship between the foreigner and his dreamt-up simulacrum. When Borges writes, quote, the foreigner dreamed that he was in the centre of a circular amphitheatre, the embedded use of the personal pronoun he situates the foreigner within his own dream. Indeed, when one dreams, it's not uncommon for one to oneself figure in the dream as the one to whom the events in the dream are presenting. The subject within the dream is both a virtual subject and a simulation of the dreaming subject. And for this reason, it would be entirely appropriate to describe the subject within the dream as the dreaming subject's heteronym in the dream. Evan Thompson in his magnificent book, Waking Dreaming Being, uses the language of virtual reality gaming to make the interesting suggestion that the distinction between the subject within the dream and the dreaming subject is analogous to the distinction between an avatar in a virtual world and its user. He says, we need to distinguish between the dreaming self and the dream ego, between the self as dreamer and the self within the dream. In a non-lucid dream, we identify with our dream ego and think, I'm flying. In a lucid dream, we think, I'm dreaming, and we recognise that the dreaming self isn't the same as the dream ego, or how we appear within the dream. The dream ego is like an avatar in a virtual world. The dreaming self is its user. In a non-lucid dream, we lose awareness that we're imagining things, and identify with the dream ego as the I. We're like gamers who identify so completely with their avatars, they forget their gaming. In a lucid dream, we regain awareness of our imagining consciousness. Non-lucid dreams frame experience from the imagined perspective of the dream ego. Lucid dreams reframe experience from the perspective of the imagining and dreaming self. Lucidity can enable the dreaming self to act consciously and deliberately in the dream state through the persona of the dream ego, which becomes like an avatar in a role-playing game. It's not, though, quite correct to characterise the relationship between the dreaming subject and the subject within the dream as being that there are two distinct subjects whose distinctness is overlooked in an act of mistaken identification. The foreigner in Borges' story dreams that he is in a circular amphitheatre, and there's no question of an error due to misidentification. It's not that in his dream a certain simulacrum is in the amphitheatre, a simulacrum which is mistaken by the dreamer to be himself. So the analogy breaks down, and instructively so, for the way it does so helps us better to understand the difference between avatars and heteronyms. The difference is that an avatar is a virtual object, a simulacrum, but the subject within the dream is a virtual subject, 
a virtual occupant of the subject position. What it means to be at the subject position within the dream is indeed that the dream experience is framed from the perspective of this position. And by positioning himself there, the dreamer has in fact cre created a heteronym, an I within the dream. So he cannot use this heteronym as a gamer might an avatar, or a master might a slave, because he does not stand in an appropriately third-personal relationship to it. It's literally correct to say, in my dream I was flying, and this statement is not a mistaken rendering based on a false identification of, in my dream my avatar was flying. The idea of heteronomy is much better captured in Yasumasa's Morimura's multiple self-portraiture under the assumed identities of famous historical artists. If indeed Morimura would be willing to affirm, I am myself them on the inside and the outside. As in My Name is Red, the text for his video piece Ego Symposium has each participant, each of whom is a famous figure in the history of art, take turns to speak for themselves in the first person. The reason this does not reduce to a case of sequential first-person narration by a series of distinct narrators, and the reason it's not merely a case of successive pseudonymous disguise, is that the viewer is ne never in any doubt that it is Morimura who is assuming that is simulating each participant in turn. Though made to resemble Frida Kahlo, or Johannes Vermeer, Morimura makes no attempt to hide himself or pretend not to be there. The representation is of Morimura as Carlo, not Morimura as if Carlo, not Morimura pretending to be Carlo. The Portuguese novelist José Saramago provides a superb illustration of the idea of the heteronym in a short notebook entry about Pessoa. He imagines Pessoa looking in a mirror and seeing his reflection, in turn, as Reich, as Cairo, and as Campos. My name is Ricardo Reich. My name is Alberto Cairo. My name is Alvaro Campos, he declares in turn. When he looks again later that night, the mirror image he sees is that of his own face. My name is Bernardo Suarez, he says, invoking an almost orthonym. Saramago writes, On one of those days when Fernando passed in front of a mirror, he spied in it, at a glance, another person. He thought this was just another optical illusions, those ones that happen when you're not paying attention, or when the last glass of eau de vie has not agreed with his liver and his head. But he cautiously took a step back just to make sure that, as is usually assumed, when mirrors show something, they do not make mistakes. This one, however, had indeed made a mistake. There was a man looking out at him from inside the mirror, and that man was not Fernando Pessoa. He was a little shorter, and his face somewhat dark-skinned and completely clean-shaven. Unconsciously, Fernando brought his hand to his upper lip and then breathed deeply in childlike relief. This moustache was still there. One can expect many things from an image that appears in the mirror, but not that it will speak. And because these two, Fernando and the image that wasn't an image of him, were not going to stay watching one another forever, 
Fernando Pessoa said, My name is Ricardo Reich. The other man smiled, nodded and disappeared. For a moment the mirror was empty, bare, and then right away another image appeared of a thin, pale man who looked as if he were not long for this world. It seemed to Fernando that this must have been the first one. However, he made no comment, merely saying, My name is Alberto Cairo. The other did not smile. He merely nodded slightly, agreeing and left. Fernando Pessoa waited, having always been told that when there were two, a third will always follow. The third figure took a few seconds to arrive, and he was one of those men who looked as if they had more health than they know what to do with, and he had the unmistakable air of an engineer trained in England. Fernando said, My name is Alvaro de Campos, and this time he did not wait for the image to disappear from the mirror, but moved away from it himself, probably tired from having seen so many people in such a short space of time. That night, in the small hours of the morning, Fernando Pessoa awoke, wondering whether Alvaro de Campos had stayed in the mirror. He got up, and what he found there was his own face. So he said, my name is Bernardo Suarez, and went back to bed. So finally, and to conclude, let me stress that a heteronym, let me be completely clear, is not a Cartesian soul. A Cartesian soul is a putative denizen in the actual world, an immaterial mental substance standing in some mysterious relationship with other real entities such as human bodies. Lacking in spatial location, there's nothing to pair particular souls with particular effects. If two souls simultaneously acquire or lose a certain property, there's no way even in principle to decide which of the two was the cause of some subsequent event. This is what Jagwon Kim called the pairing problem for Cartesian souls. Then there is, as Bernard Williams puts it, absolutely nothing left to distinguish any Cartesian eye from any other, and it's impossible to see any more what would be subtracted from the universe by the removal of me. A heteronym is an aspect of a virtual world, although... As we have seen, it's not a virtual object like an avatar. What is subtracted from the universe by the removal of a heteronym is an entire style of feeling, and styles of feeling are also what's added to the universe by the invention of new heteronyms, new virtual subjects. One of the ways in which you try to explain what a heteronym is by contrast with things which it might superficially seem to be similar to, such as a pseudonym, persona, and avatar. And actually, a question we do have um, from Kelly Drew is asking really for um, another opportunity to explain by contrast this why this this time by contrast with uh, asking how would one distinguish heteronymity from, for example a method actor improvising in theatre, right? Okay. So, yeah, a method actor inha- is, inhabits somebody else's from, from the inside, lives them in that way. So, um, again, it's just an opportunity to explain by contrast. What's the, what's the significant differences between the method actor inhabiting a different eye, if you like, and a heteronomic inhabiting of another eye? Yeah, that's a very good question. That's, uh, yeah, that's a really nice example. Well, the difference isn't that sharp. I mean, I would need to know 
to know a little bit more about what actually happens in the mind of a method actor. I know that they think themselves into the character, but what what does a method actor actually do? I mean, insofar as they try to have a an experiential relationship to the character, which which uh, inform which involves kind of inhabiting the character's manner of feeling, way of experiencing, then um, that relation does seem to me to be heteronymic in spirit. It all depends really on what what goes on inside the method actor's mind. But I can see, I can I can see that what one thing that might you might say that goes on would make it sound a lot like a heteronym, assuming a heteronym, the relationship of assuming a heteronym, as long as it as long as it's not um, a mimetic relationship, as long as it doesn't involve imitation, but actually embodying, becoming the character in some you know pretty robust sense of the term, then. Uh, Heteronomy seems to be a quite a good, quite a good model for explaining what what's going on in method acting. There is one salient difference, and that's this: that the the experiential world of the character being acted is already given. It's given by the playwright, and what the actor is doing is is inhabiting a skin that's been already given in, in advance. Whereas persona's heteronyms are persona that he himself creates. He is himself the author and the agent of them. So if you think that's the significant uh, difference, then that's something that could be emphasised. You mentioned the, the poem Countless Lives Inhabit Us. And you know, that title sounds like it's a, a description, if you like, this, uh, yeah, that countless lives do inhabit us. Pessoa's work was a very deliberate work. It was kind of a project. And so it might seem that these countless lives sort of need to be created and explored. So I'm, I'm interested in the extent to which het, this theory of heteronomy, this model of heteronomy, is describing something which is supposed to be, a, if you like, a universal feature of human experience, or how much it's more to do with describing a kind of project which we can engage in or, or not engage in. Yeah, that's a good question, Julian. The answer I would give is that what Pessoa is describing is a universal feature of subjective human life it's just not one that normally becomes visible it's like you only kind of discover certain features of fundamental reality if you smash particles together at really high energies it's not you know they're not evident in everyday being of normal things it was only by having by undergoing various extreme experimentation in the nature of subjectivity that Pessoa kind of cracked the surface and discovered certain features about subjectivity which aren't normally ev- evident in everyday experiential life, but that doesn't mean they're not there. It just means that they're not, you know, they're not they're not visible. I, I mean, I agree with you that count- countless lives inhabit us as a description. It would be better if, to say countless lives can inhabit us. You know, I mean, it's not necessarily the case that we are the substrata of multiple heteronyms all the time, but we. That possibility always exists for all of us, you know. And once you acknowledge that that possibility exists, then it has implications for the way that you live and the way that you understand your experiential life, which can't be forsaken. One sort of parallel which I I want to sort of try to explore a bit, perhaps. I was very struck with a line from another poem in which was, I am merely the place where things are thought and felt. And if you used to read that sentence just by itself, 
I guess, you know, you, you might be reminded of kind of the, the, the Buddhist conception of the self as uh, mm. there being no, not self in the sense of no thing there, but really the place where things arise. Now, it seems to me that, you know, Pessoa is coming at this whole question of the nature of the self from a, in some ways a very, very different angle, at least hasn't got the same theoretical framework. At the same time, there's also that element of just paying close attention. I just wondered, did you have any thoughts on how Pessoa's insights could relate to illuminate or challenge the, the Buddhist conception? Yeah, I did. In fact, I've got a whole chapter on that very question in, uh, in the book that I've recently published. The whole discussion goes back, actually, to a, a famous essay written by Richard Zenith, who's also the translator of the Book of Disquiet and of um, much of uh, Pessoa's prose and poetic writings. He wrote an essay asking whether Alberto Cairo is a Zen heteronym, exploring the idea that there's something Zen-like in Cairo's way of experiencing the world. I didn't uh, say much about Cairo in, the, in my talk, but um, his, his way of experiencing the world is to be as direct as possible. Here's a stone. Here's a tree. Here's me. Not to interpret the data, but just to say, just to have a, a very direct form of confrontation with reality uh, and not to allow conceptual constructs to interpose themselves between oneself and one's experience of the world. And that does sound like a very Buddhist recommendation for how we should, the Buddhists say that we should see things as they really are, that conceptual constructs are just forms of um, fabrication that lead us astray and bewitch us, bewitch our intellects. So there's a lot to be said for the suggestion that the heteronym Alberto Cairo is a Buddhist heteronym. Now, whether it's Zen or whether it's some other type of Buddhist, is a, you know, have to get into the details of Buddhist philosophy to decide that. I, I argued, in fact, that it's not really Zen, but there is a Buddhist school called Yoga Chara, and Cairo is sounds like a yoga chara heteronym so it was was actually very well read in indian philosophy you know we, his his library was preserved and catalogued so we know what books he had and in fact we also have you know the, his annotations of those books and uh, yeah you find in his library quite a lot of books on on indian philosophy on buddhism uh, so we know, we know that he was reading indian philosophy he was also um at one point influenced by theosophy he translated uh, theosophical texts into Portuguese, so he was by no means unacquainted with uh, with with the with the rudiments of Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, I mean another sort of perhaps line of comparison, and as you point out, you're you're much more uh, steeped in this than, than myself. And one talks about Buddhism, but of course there are many many forms of of Buddhism, and it's always a bit of a generalisation to just say Buddhist as though it captures everything. But again, in lots of forms of Buddhism, it's my understanding there's a kind of a, a a reluctance to engage in what might be called metaphysical speculation. You know, so we, as you said, there we must address things as they are, and as they are is really as they're given to experience. And you, you talked about this grounding problem for subjects, this question of what is it that underpins us. And uh, so there was a, a, a question here from someone going by the name of Vanished One, which sounds like a quite a suitable name for someone engaging in a discussion on Pessoa. 
who says that you know, multiple heteronyms were sceptical of meta- metaphysics. Can a virtual subject contrasted with a Cartesian soul escape distaste for metaphysics as a prolonged form of latent insanity, which is um, uh, apparently a quote from Schwarz, one of the um, heteronyms. Um, so, so, I mean, I know you talked about, touched this a bit in your talk, but I mean, is that really part of what Pessoa is trying to do philosophically, tell us to, um, well, see certain forms of metaphysics as a, as a prolonged form of latent insanity? And if so, what is the nature of that insanity? <laughs> Pessoa was certainly sceptical about systematic philosophy. In his early youth, he did try to write systematic philosophy, but uh, as he matured as a thinker, he became quite sceptical about the pretensions of systematic philosophy. And often when people talk about metaphysics, they mean systematic metaphysics. They they don't mean having beliefs about the existence of the external world or something like that, but they mean systematic metaphysical theorizing. I think Pessoa was quite quite skeptical about that. That that project, the project of doing systematic metaphysics. And you can understand why, because uh, you know, the one of the one of the fundamental motivations for the whole framework of heteronomy is that there are many different ways of experience in the world, many different forms of encounter with the world, and we shouldn't uh, preclude any of them from ourselves. We shouldn't we shouldn't say there's just one right way of experiencing the world, and all the other ways are wrong. He was so he was a pluralist. He wanted to say that we can enrich our experience by being open to many different ways of experiencing the world. So for that reason, we'll be skeptical of metaphysics. There's another form of skepticism uh, that, that's quite prominent in Pessoa, which is to be skeptical of a, of a real distinct, of a sharp distinction between what's given in ordinary perception, perceptual experience, and what's what one finds in works of the imagination. For Pessoa, I think that the imagination was just as powerful a way of accessing reality as as perceptual experience, and the objects of imagination were just as real as objects of sense of senses. He was skeptical of a of a distinction between real and imagined, or between real and dreamt. So that's another form that his, that his scepticism could have taken. The title of the talk was, you know, The Poet as Philosopher. And I, I just wanted to ask something a little bit more about taking poetry and literature as philosophy. You, you've just said how he kind of rejected systematic philosophy. And I think that to, certainly for people who've been doing philosophy in the Anglophone world for, you know, like the past 100 years, there seems to be something sort of quite fundamentally distinct between philosophy as a discipline and, and literature as a discipline. Something, a distinction which perhaps isn't as sharp in some other traditions. I, I can't remember the name, unfortunately, but I remember there was, a, I think, a, a Shinto philosopher in Japan who sort of talked about the need for poetry as arising from the fact that there were certain things where you know language lacks the the precision or the capacity to capture an aspect of reality and he said something like you know where where i cannot um capture whatever my thoughts are in straight prose that's when i kind of need poetry um do, do you think that if we are treating poetry and literature as philosophy are we, to a certain extent, having to expand our understanding of what philosophy is, or is it rather a case 
that we have to appreciate how literature and poetry can do philosophy in a familiar way, uh, or, or perhaps even a, a third option I haven't mentioned. Ah, oh, right. Well, you you, you said uh, we there, and of course, you know, since a, part, a large part of my academic life has been exploring how they do philosophy, where they be the, are the Indians and the you know, and we, you know, the ancient Greeks did philosophy in a very different way than we did. We do philosophy, so it's very dangerous, really, to think that philosophy proper is the way that we do it. You know, I mean, I, I think that the, the ancient Indians were doing, d- doing philosophy. They were, you know, uh, of course, the style of writing in the Upanishads isn't something that will get published in the Journal of Philosophy, but I don't think it's any less philosophy for that. I think. What needs to happen is that we need to broaden our sense of what philosophy is. And one way we can do that is precisely by seeing how other people in other cultures and at other times did philosophy. And uh, certainly in many cases, there was a, a far more literary quality to doing philosophy. The second thing that I would say is that, you know, armchair philosophy has quite a bad reputation and sometimes justifiably so. You know, you get uh, you get people writing philosophy of physics who've never been into a lab, haven't got a clue what uh, what an actual physical experiment looks like. And the same is true for sometimes the philosophers of mind. You know, philosophy of mind is supposed to be that discipline in which it explores the nature of human experience, lived human experience. But the people who explored that, the people who did the experiments about that, were the were the literary figures, were the poets, were the novelists. They're the ones who have explored. The nature of lived experience the most fundamentally and re- regrettably it's often the case that philosophers of literature don't actually read much literature you know i mean somebody like pessoa he wasn't a trained philosopher he wasn't always able to formulate his insights with the kind of analytical clarity or rigor draw all the fine distinctions that a paid-up member of the philosophical profession might be able to do but his insights into the nature of human experience were often far more profound than those of a, a of an armchair philosopher. So I think that potentially the idea is that there's a very productive symbiotic relationship between the poets and the philosophers, that they're doing complementary work and uh, there shouldn't be uh, the antagonism. There wasn't the antagonism between them, in, in certainly not in India, I don't think in China either. In the European tradition, there has historically, since Pelito, been an antagonism between the two. I mean, you said there that, you know, he wasn't able to put his insights into those, uh, you know, formal, systematic, uh, philosophical modes. And that makes me wonder whether that inability was um, a, a lack in himself or whether or not actually something would have been lost if he had done so. I mean, for example, you know, I, I kind of have this recurring sort of irritation, which is that if I go to an art gallery, uh, I often find the you know, curatorial uh, notes that accompany these things really quite banal. You know, you have this sort of piece of work, which in some ways seems to be quite profound, and it ends up becoming some generic, put into sort of straight prose, it's generically saying the work questions the distinction between appearance and reality. And you go, well, okay, that's that's not very interesting as a bit of prose description, but actually the work's doing something. So is it partly the case that if you do try too hard to sort of translate 
these insights which are come in a more poetic form into more literal language that rather than elucidate them and make them clearer you can sometimes perhaps dilute them and make them less interesting i mean sometimes that happens yeah but i don't think it's necessarily the case i wouldn't go that way myself because that's to put limits on philosophy that's to say that there are kinds of human experience that can't be understood philosophically i would i don't think i would agree with that you know i don't see why we should limit philosophy in that way if if anything it's a call to expand philosophy you know if, if you find that the tools and techniques of 20th century logical positivism can't explain what's going on in a work of art so much so much the worse for logical positivism you need an enriched apparatus philosophical apparatus and someone like pessoa what he what he precisely provides challenges to in is for philosophers to to enrich their conceptual frameworks to enrich their philosophies of mind to be able to make sense of the kinds of phenomena that he's describing. I'm, I'm kind of an optimist about philosophy. I think it's, it has the capacity for that enrichment. I don't think it's, it's got some kind of fundamental, intrinsic limitations. You always have to avoid didacticism and um, thinking that some one philosophical theory has all the answers to all the problems. We've got another, another question here. I find this interesting because you were making a comparison with Kierkegaard's pseudonyms. And Kierkegaard was a writer who, he wrote a lot about irony and he used a lot of irony and also parody. So the question is, what is the place of irony and or parody in the figure of the heteronym? And how does this affect the way in which we consider Pessoa qua poet, writer or philosopher? Yeah, you know, when I get questions like this, the, my, the, the teacher instinct starts to kick in. And, you know, I really, I want to ask the question of further you know, I want to kind of interrogate the questioner a little bit more to find out what's going on inside their mind. Just put it this way. Do you see elements of irony and or parody in Pessoa's heteronomic work? And and if so, what, what is mm. it doing? Yeah, I mean, there are two ways of answering that question. One is to say that the principal vehicle for irony is the pseudonym. You know, Socrates was the primary ironist. Kierkegaard was a great ironist. If irony is a matter of putting on a mask, pretending to have a view that you don't really hold, then pseudonym is the, is the ideal for that. There's a distinction to be drawn between the pseudonym and the heteronym. Heteronym is a, is a much more authentic way of writing, a much more authentic way of documenting one's experience because one isn't putting on a mask. When Pessoa writes as Cairo, he's not putting on a mask. He's not hiding his true intentions. He's he's living and experiencing authentically in the manner that Cairo does and writing poetry in that manner. So that's one way to answer it. But there are plenty of people who write about Pessoa saying that he was a parodist, you know, a, a par exemplar, and that you can't really take anything he says simply at straight value, that he was a great game player. And that's also true. I mean, the, you know, yeah, you have to be very careful when you're reading Pessoa not to take anything really at, at simply at straight value. Even his, even his prose non-fiction writings, it's, it's, it'd be a mistake to take them simply at the face value. The one thing that I would em- want to emphasize about Pessoa is that there is this tradition which begins with Socrates and stresses the value of, of irony in the philosophical life. And I think there are, in so many ways, Pessoa is an anti-Socratic figure. 
and that you know a lot of his philosophical outlook is ex- is, is anti-Socratic, including of course his his philosophy of self. So I'm kind of wary. I'm kind of cautious of using the framework of irony in interpreting Pessoa for that reason. That I don't. I just don't. I don't regard him as in the lineage of Socrates. Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and thinkers like that. I think I regard them as as very much wanting to break away from that lineage. Could, could you just say a bit more about what makes him anti-Socratic? That's interesting, and I think we got a little bit of a taste of it. But it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about uh, the, the, why you think he's anti-Socratic. Uh, there's really no hint of the tripartite soul in Pessoa. Pessoa's understanding of the nature of selfhood and what it is to 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 live as a human being and to have have a, an authentic mode of experience, precisely in its multiplicity, in in the idea that um, in its in its fluidity, that um, that each of us is is capable of infinite variation in our styles of experience, is uh, is you know is a break is a is a, is a break from the from the dominant way of thinking about. What constitutes authenticity in human experience? So it's anti-Socratic in that sense that he's rejecting, you know, the possibility of giving uh, a unitary account of the unity of the human self. You know, that the, the, there's a kind of a, a fundamental desire for some form of unity or integrity. And that's what makes him a modernist thinker. You know, I think you know, uh, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, but he's he's a modernist thinker. If, so, if there's something common to that tradition of modernist thinkers, it's the kind of that they don't think the search for the unity of the human soul is is a feasible, defensible project. Yeah. Just as Pessoa yeah. radicalized it, he didn't talk about the fragmentation of the self as the others did. He talked about the multiplication of the self, of the pluralization of the self, which was a which was a a much more radical and uniquely Pessoan idea. Just following up on that, there also seems to be a sense in which, I mean, a couple of phrases that sort of stuck out from your talk were depersonalized self-awareness and an exercise in self-alienation. It almost seems to be this sort of paradoxical thing that in order to understand oneself, one has to detach from oneself almost in a way. Could, could you perhaps say a little bit more about what's meant by those phrases? And perhaps how we can use those ideas to to better understand ourselves. Well, there is something paradoxical, or at least apparently paradoxical, in Pessoa's thought. That on the one hand, he speaks about being a meeting place for a for a whole coterie of heteronyms, which seems to imply that this meeting place, this depersonalized, you know, theatre stage, is is not itself a person. And on the other hand, you've got this uh, theme of the pluralization of the self, so that one isn't just a single personality, but a plurality of personalities. And other other authors have noticed that this this apparently paradoxical feature in his philosophy of self. I don't think it is a genuine paradox, but I think that you know solving the paradox does lead one to go have to go deeper into into um, into the way that he's thinking about human consciousness. There's an analogous paradox that arises in the context of dreaming, which is that you might have a dream in which you're at the centre of the dream. You know, you're in the dream. You know, you're looking out. To, supposing you're 
you're dreaming that you're sitting a chair in a chair and you're looking out into the room, into a room, and there's somebody who's sitting on the chair opposite you, and you recognize that person as being yourself. It's Julian Bagini sitting there on the chair in front of you. And um, that seems paradoxical. How can, how can it be that you are the one at the center of the dream looking at another person, at a person sitting opposite you in the dream who you recognize as being yourself? But in fact, it's not really paradoxical. As long as you say that in the dream, the one that you are is the one that's at the center of the dream world, the one that all the dream experiences are being presented to. So in the dream, if I say I'm dreaming that I'm looking at Julian Bagini, then in the dream, you're not Julian. What I called in my talk the subject position is the position from which the world is presenting itself. And that's variably occupied. That can be occupied by a different individual at a different time. It's the same with Pessoa and in relation to his heteronyms in his Cairo poems, he is Cairo. In his uh, Reich poems, he is Reich. In, in every case, he's the, he's the one at the center of a world of experience. But the one who's there at the center is different in each case. So, so we hold fixed the idea of there being the center of a field of experience, but we allow to vary who is occupying that central position. Sorry, it's got a bit technical, but that's the way that we can solve the paradox. We can have, we can both have there being something fixed and also allow for the, the kind of variation. So, you know, basically what this comes down to is that all this talk about being both plur a plurality of heteronyms and a depersonalized meeting place sounds paradoxical. But if you use this framework of centers, multiply occupied centers of, sub, of, of fields of experience, you can actually res resolve the paradox. That's far too short a summary. Uh, again, in, in, the, in my book, which I'm not meaning to promote, I, I, do, I do devote several chapters to discussing this in enormous amount of detail. <laughs> your publisher would tell you you should indeed be promoting your book and, <laughs> and it's totally fair to do so. Now, this isn't a, a talk of, of, of self-help at all, but I, I am curious, of course, that you know, this idea that heteronyms are things that, you know, we can explore if we delve deeper. And there's something clearly that many writers do. I mean, I, many writers describe the experience of, you know, seeing the world through one of their characters, it giving them new eyes and being surprised by what they find, what their characters do and so forth. That's, that's kind of quite common. But if it's not too sort of crude a question, if we're not to sort of go away in ourselves, sort of become poets and writers and sort of delve into heteronomy in that way, what can we take from this? You know, what, what can we, apart from being dazzled and impressed by what Pessoa does with his heteronyms, how does this perhaps can and should change how we see ourselves and how we relate to ourselves and understand and go through life? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would say that the key take-home message is that our identities are not fixed. We're not, we don't have fixed identities. You know, your identity is um, in large part up to you. You have an enormous amount of freedom in constructing and choosing the identity that you want to have. So there's much more 
fluidity in the concept of what it is to have an identity than it normally seems. It normally seems like you're you're almost like you're imprisoned by your identity. It's more like a cage than a form of authentic living. So if we want to take home so a message from Pessoa, is that, that 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 picture is not right. That we have a great deal of freedom to choose the identity we want to have, the place that we want to occupy. We don't need to go all the way with Pessoa and say that we can have multiple identities simultaneously, although I think that's also true. But at least we can recognise that the concept of an identity is not something that's set in stone, something that that we have agency with respect to, that we can fashion for ourselves. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes in this series, so do subscribe on whatever platform you use. Leave us a review, tell your friends about us. You can also watch videos of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.